guys. I'm fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I am science fiction fantasy author Philip Dreyer Duncan. And I'm also the only author I've ever known of who sponsored a race car once. And I got some bad news tonight. Uh, you know, we missed Christopher a couple weeks ago because, uh, as we learned, he was out fighting crime. And I suspected that he might actually be Batman. Well, it turns out now I think he might be Superman. And I think one of the villains might have shoved some kryptonite up his bat hole because he is deathly ill and not with us this evening. So poor Christopher is running a bat fever in his poor little super head. So that's unfortunate. But what is fortunate is our guest this evening is another of our longtime author friends, horror author Tommy B. Smith. Tommy B. Smith is a writer of dark fiction, award-winning author of The Mourner's Cradle, Poisonous, The Short Story Collection, Pieces of Chaos, and the forthcoming Black Carminia series. His presence currently infests Fort Smith, Arkansas, where he resides with his wife and cats. And he's the only author I know to have had his car stolen while at a convention. (laughs) Hey, Tommy. Hey, awesome. Yeah, let's leave with that. (laughs) And poor Tommy, he regrets ever telling me that story. Yeah, good times. I love telling that story. Story about how we got stranded in Denver with no vehicle and stuck on the phone with insurance companies and cops and all those fun people. Over the course of the weekend. In the super helpful hotel. Yes. The hotel was interesting, though. The Curtis Hotel has got a themed floors. Every floor is a different theme. I think it was floor 13 was the horror floor, but there was a variety of different. There was a video game themed floor. There was one that was music themed. So that part I really enjoyed. I probably would have enjoyed it much more without all the, you know, the automobile theft. (laughs) So minus that, it was a great weekend. But then that happened, and that took up most of the weekend. <laughs> now, because I'm an idiot, every time we're at a convention together, every time I see him, I'm like, is your car still here? You still have your car? Which for sure <laughs> means that karma is going to steal my car at some convention that I'm at with Tommy B. Smith. All right, so, Tommy, I'm going to see if I can copy Alexander from last week. You're a poor writer. What, le- <laughs> what led you to be a no. poor writer? Are we talking about... As in uh, Lieutenant Uhura <laughs> from Star Trek? Uh, I don't poor, Al, poor Alexander. He's, you know, it's so funny because he's a horror writer, obviously, and he does the horror review book channel on YouTube. But yes. if you ever hear him say horror, horror, it comes out as horror. Love it. <laughs> anyway, so what led you to the horror genre? Because the whole time I've known you, I think that's basically all you write, isn't it? Mostly. I actually started out writing more fantasy. Oh, really? And there are some short stories in fantasy that I had published uh, early on. Some of those people dig deep into my bibliography will find that. There was some uh, dark high fantasy, but a real issue I encountered when trying to publish uh, fantasy was that some of the editors found my work to be a bit too dark for their publications. And I've kept some of those rejection letters. I thought that was an interesting. I mean, it's not the worst reason in the world to have a story rejected. Sure. But writing fantasy, also I found myself sort of making excursions into uh as I said, darker fantasy and also a sort of weird horror, mm-hmm. um, as is sometimes referred to. But I was always a reader since since early on and always really uh, imaginative, probably too much for my own good <laughs> in those days. We did not have this contraption, the Internet and everything that comes along with that. So we were just either bored or you found games mm-hmm. to play or you read books and we had all sorts of curiosities and items around the house and among them books uh, we had a big dusty utility room full of books, so I would make trips down there and sort through the books and find any of them might appear interesting. And there, it was a variety of you know genre fiction titles. So there was uh, fantasy, some science fiction. I remember a short story collection by uh, science fiction author Powell Anderson. A couple of different collections of his. There were some Alfred Hitchcock anthologies. Uh, so there was some horror, there was some fantasy, there was some science fiction. There were all sorts of things I found down there. Uh, some work by uh, John Coyne, horror author who really doesn't write so much horror anymore uh, since he started playing golf, writing about golf. <laughs> anyway, it was a big one back in the 80s. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of reading and, and I enjoyed the short story collections. And at that time, I was very young. So I was just writing recreationally. But mm-hmm. I did start doing that as well, very young, just for fun, as I guess a lot of us do. Now, mentioning short stories, 
um, short stories in books as well as television. What comes to mind with that is The Twilight Zone was also probably. Oh, a, I love The Twilight Zone. Loved yeah, it. Big influence on me. Yeah, I always enjoyed the sort of, like I said, weird horror. And some of the episodes were not horror. Some of them were science fiction. Some of them leaned more toward uh, the fantastical and the weird. And uh, I always enjoyed that. You know, uh, that was one of my favorite shows of all time. So, uh, and just late night television. There was a big horror boom going on in the 80s and some of that with some of the more slasher flicks and the like. And uh, it was a combination of things. But also I had a lot when I was young, speaking of being imaginative, sometimes that worked against me and that I had a lot of nightmares and really just dreamed up a lot of different things that I, probably at that time being very young, I didn't really recognize the, the boundaries sometimes between the world and the world of fiction. So, you know, a young child really does not know what the world might hold, what might be hiding in the dark, behind the curtains, what might be out there. Sure. Out there beyond the stars, beyond the scope of your imagination. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there were really a lot of things that influenced me sort of in that direction. But like I said, I started out, it was more a combination of fantasy and horror and just sort of over the years has gradually progressed more toward horror. You know, when we were at um, SoonerCon, I was just finishing up a panel and somebody in the audience asked me a question and put me on the spot. And I just see if you agree with my answer, because I just pulled it off the top of my head. So somebody asked, what is the difference between horror and urban fantasy? And I said, um, I said, just off the top of my head, to me, generally, the difference with horror and urban fantasy would be that in urban fantasy, the main character can fight back. Oh, that's interesting. I was kind of thought, uh, yeah, urban fantasy is like a, a poodle driving a Cadillac off of a cliff, and horror is like uh, someone getting stabbed and eviscerated in a back alley, and then, yeah, maybe they did or didn't get the fight back, but it doesn't matter because they're in trails, <laughs> or, you know, halfway down the, around the corner of the next building. Yeah. You know, so like, um, uh, this is relevant right now because I'm just reading or listening to the audio book for this installment is called, If You're Reading This Book, You're in the Wrong Universe by Jason Morgan. Mm. And I don't know if you know this series. It's the John Dies at the End series. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, yes, love, I do. Love those books. They're so good. But they really walk that line very finely, right? Because they're very, very creepy. And there's a ton of horror elements. And the main characters don't sort of really have magic. So it's like some bookstores, you'll see it in like horror. Other bookstores, you'll see it in science fiction and fantasy. And others, I've seen it just shoved in general fiction because they're like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah, they've got soy sauce instead <laughs> of magic. <laughs> they've got soy, soy sauce <laughs> instead of magic. At least, at least early on. <laughs> so, but you talked a bit about inspiration. Um, I know So, for a lot of fantasy authors, research is kind of like a big factor depending on how in depth you're going with your world. So how does that work with the horror genre? Like how much research is typically involved with that? Well, it really depends on the story you intend to tell, you know, as, as with fantasy or anything else, what sort of world you intend to build. Sometimes I reach for uh, authenticity with setting, but characters as well. When writing something based in a specific region, for example, New Era, which is the first book of Black Herminia series, I actually journeyed to the location of New Era in Central Louisiana. It's between Alexandria and uh, the Mississippi River. So we traveled uh, south down to Alexandria and then cut east across the area um, to sort of absorb the lay of the land and the attitude of its people and, and the people even down to the dialects. And just like I said, capturing the authenticity, wanting to inject that into my work because there are just too many works I've read that were just so completely far off base with certain areas that I've actually visited, or even in some cases, one specifically, I remember an area that I lived in and everyone speaking in strange dialects that no one who lived there would mm. ever <laughs> use and locations that really don't exist and no one there would have ever heard of. Sometimes you can take some liberties because it is fiction, but when you get really, I think it's good to know, know the rules before you can, before you bend them and understand exactly what you can get away with. Sure. And research can include, um, like I went another route with the Mourner's Cradle. It was uh, researching the 1970s and the archaeological developments of that time period in the late 70s, which would be different from the discoveries we've made since, which has perhaps uh, debunked some of those views and beliefs and discoveries, which, of course, didn't present the entire picture. But I wanted to capture what the people actually, what the developments were of that time period, also the attitudes of the late 70s, which are very different from today. And, you know, once again, researching that region of Peru and, and South America, there was a lot of research that went into 
you know, ancient civilizations, like for instance, the uh, Norte Chico civilization of South America, which is uh, ne- never left behind any written language, unlike many of the ancient civilizations that left behind some form of written language that we were able to at least decipher part of and to learn more about that, their way of life. Uh, this is one that we found structures and various depictions and artwork and artifacts and the like, but no written language. So we were very limited on that. But that was interesting to me to sort of fill in the blanks and find what people thought versus what I might imagine the way of life and why it is that they might have disappeared. So looking into all of that, and then also just the geography of that region, there really is so much. Research can also be retrospective. I'm sure we all know you uh, encounter a series of events or a location traveling, something that inspires you. And in a way, you've already done some research. And however much more you decide to inject into that, of course, is up to you. At the same time, you don't necessarily want to give the reader a full, complete lesson mm-hmm. of everything you've learned and really break it down into detail. And to me, it's important to have just enough to lend that authenticity to the story without giving them a full course on exactly what happened when, where this is, and everything else. Yeah, I think that's really key. Because we are telling a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And and what's really interesting to me is hearing you talk about that, because so I write more of the urban fantasy, right? But, you know, the similarities between what we would do would be the monsters and evil entities and things like that, right? So I find I don't tend to do, um, well, I guess I do a little bit, right? So like, right now I'm working on my Blade Mage novel that'll be set around New Orleans. Mm. But I'm mostly calling upon Excellent. my own memories of, of New Orleans and going down to Cocadre and the bayou and stuff. So I'm pulling a lot of that from myself and not spending a lot of time on New Orleans itself. But where I did spend a lot of time was digging into the lore around New Orleans and what urban myths are there and the monsters and things. So I could call upon those. And that's pretty much been a staple for me in my Blade Mage series because from book one, it feels like every time I get kind of hung up for a moment, and I'm like, mm, not sure what to do here. I just start researching different monsters and things. And mm-hmm. somehow, you know, I used to tell this story about the most recent one. It's not out yet. It's actually with JH for edits. It's called Path Killer. And there's some Cherokee lore in there. But I didn't want to use like the normal like, oh, skinwalkers and things like that. I wanted to go a little deeper and find some more obscure things. And I did. And like I had a whole lot of holes in the story on how I was going to pull things together and just as I was reading about old Cherokee lore and monsters and their mythos and different things, I stumbled on a couple of different things that pulled the entire novel together for me. And that's sort of been the story, but I'm tending to be the point being that I tend to focus more on the monsters and things. Do you spend much time on that or is it really about the people and culture for you? Well, really it depends. Some are more of one and some are more of the other. Sure. That's fair. And then sometimes the people are the monsters, of course. Uh, yes, oftentimes that does need to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. So let's move into craft just a little bit and talk about, I don't think this is something we've really talked about too much on the show. So what's your view on finding your voice as an author? We all have our influences and inspirations and the authors that we read early on that uh, influenced us and that we enjoy and those we may look to to sort of figure out what exactly it is that impassions us to do what we do and and what we want to do. But sometimes we end up, I think, a little too caught up in those, or many newer writers do, you know. So I think it's a journey of finding your way from that, from being basically uh, some pastiche of all of these other voices to finding what your voice is. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I mean, some of the the older works I had, or the ones years ago, when you remember I had uh, Poisonous out, Mm -hmm. and then uh, Pieces of Chaos were more inspired by... Uh, some of those things I'd said about before, you know, like a uh, slasher sort of inspired by the 80s horror boom. And then some of the weird fiction, you know, some of the, some of the old style weird fiction, uh, more with a short story collection, you know, like the Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Machen and the old, you know, and maybe a little, not so much Lovecraft as much, but, you know, and, and all sorts of other things across the board. And then the Twilight Zone and such. But, you know, I think it was more after that point that I started sort of discovering exactly what it was I wanted to do with an author and finding that balance mm-hmm. and inspired just by uh, so many other things. Of course, I was, and I spoke of this to someone else not long ago, but uh, a friend we all know and remember, you know, Logan Masterson. Oh, yeah. Years ago, many years past, it, we were on a panel at uh, Mid-South Con and he had uh, someone had asked something about ideas 
and he made a comment or he be, actually began an entire rant with ideas are everywhere. And then he went on to explain ideas, inspiration and the many faces and facets of just how everything, you know, every absolutely everything around us can inspire us and influence us and the like. And, you know, it was something he was very eloquent in the way he presented all of that. It was something that just kind of stuck with me. But, you know, it's uh, taking that, taking what you are, what you want to do and knowing where you want to go and discovering your voice. And I think only the individual, the reader and the writer sort of this may be difficult depend because everyone is different to pinpoint exactly when that happens. But I I felt the mourner's cradle was sort of the right step in that direction. And then it was when I wrote the following book that was Anybody Want to Play War, which I just sat down to tell a story without actually any genre constraint. I didn't say I was going to, I'm going to write a fantasy story. I'm going to write a horror story. I said I'm going to write a story. Let's see what this is going to become. And that, I think, was really where I sort of found my voice. And then I returned to horror after that. And what sort of seemed to have this new skill set, tool set that I've acquired over the years, you know, going into my new work with uh, the Black Carmenia series and all of that. So I think, you know, it's just the journey of an author, you know, all of us are sort of trying to find our own voice and competing with ourselves to put out the best work that we can. Now, did you identify in yourself when you felt yourself developing your voice, your own unique voice? I think so. I mean, I saw, you know, shades of that increasingly. So also, I mean, there's so much farther to go just in everything I want to do creatively. Sure. It never ends, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd ask the question because I think for me, I don't think it really clicked for me that I was developing my own voice until I had some reviewers several years back that compared me to authors I wouldn't have thought of. Right. And so it was like it would have made sense to me, like if somebody was like, oh, you sound like a great value David Gimmel, I'd have been like, that makes sense. He's my favorite <laughs> author. So it it makes sense that I would kind of sound like a great value David Gimmel. It was uh, getting compared, and I don't remember even really the comparisons right now, but it was comparisons to other authors that I was like, wow, I wouldn't have thought that. And then it was like sort of started to click for me like, oh, I'm developing my own voice. And it kind of came at the same time of like, oh, I kind of understand what I'm doing a little bit more now. And then a few books later, it's like, and I better understand what I'm doing even more so now (laughs) um, until it becomes that sort of second nature thing of you kind of know what your voice sounds like and how to, you know, twist up your own voice, I guess. J.H. still sounds like J.R.R. Tolkien. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I wish, but I do not. (laughs) It is interesting to see the influences. So like, because I edit everything that J.H. writes, right? So Mm. it's interesting. And I talked about this, I think, recently in one of the episodes. It's interesting, like, because obviously she wants me to read some of her favorite authors and things. And so some of them is Mm. like, I don't see her... her style in there, but other ones I very hmm. much do, right? So, you know, if I read a Tamara Pierce or Charles DeLint or any of the Neil Gaiman books I've read, I'm like, yeah, she's very much in that landscape, right? And her voice mm-hmm. is, sits right alongside theirs, and they're all different and unique, but style-wise, she's very similar. Yeah, I mean, there's there's one J.R.R. Tolkien, but then there's also one of yeah. you, so. Thank God. Nobody needs <laughs> two of me. <laughs> that was very mean. <laughs> <laughs> well you could get out more books that way yeah that's true yeah. <laughs> um do we want to talk about series yeah because tommy i didn't know you were working on a series this is the first series you've done right yeah i didn't either until the second book so <laughs> it was kind of weird the way that worked out yeah i was talking with the publisher and originally i wrote new era the way that book ends, you know, there's going to be something else. But then I started writing a different sort of book after that. And then those two sort of merged together at some point through. And then I signed a three book contract. So I'm like, well, I guess I guess there better be a book three. (laughs) And I sort of had a discussion. Well, I did have a discussion. And it was explaining that this is not really a uh, linear sort of series. It's really kind of strange the way it's it's uncustomary the way it works. They said, well, a series, the definition of a series has expanded over time. It's not necessarily a, a group of people get in, have some adventures and get into right. trouble and then get out of it. And then the next book is all over again, you know. So this, even in being a series, I don't think this is the way a lot of people write a series. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. No, it's interesting to see that there are so many different approaches. Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious as well about your approaches because both of you have been writing series as well. With this, uh, yeah, it's uh, start from one point, start from 
somewhere to the left. And then second book, it's somewhere in the right. And then this, the two sort of merge somewhere along the way. And then the third book, it's interesting because both of them, both the first and the second book, second book, Oblivion's Child, by the way, is my newest. Mm-hmm. The third book should be out early next year, but there is some overlap between the two. And there, it will become apparent to readers why this is a second book in a series. But also the third book is sort of like a sequel to both of these books. So it's, um, you know, the second book is interdimensional horror. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of a collision of psychological and cosmic horror. So when things get really cosmic, it will eventually become apparent. As, like I said, people who've read the second book, it will become, first it may not, but just a different way of doing things. But then again, like I said, it is interdimensional horror and time is relative. So that sounds fun. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it made sense to me. It sounds fun. Yeah. I think from a series standpoint, sort of designing your series and driving it is not too much more complex than the, you know, building a full story for a single novel anyway. I think the one thing I would definitely call out for people that I've ran into is what'll start to happen. You know, I'm writing now the fifth book in the Blade Mage. If I'd have kept some of the uh, third title, I originally separated into three books because it was so big. And so this would have been the seventh book then but I merged those just based on some reader feedback and things. But what happens now is so there's I'm 500,000 words or something into that series. And so what happens is like, I have to keep very meticulous notes of characters to bring back into it. Right. So Mm -hmm. it becomes very challenging to remember and maintain your continuity is probably the most challenging thing. I think. Yeah, I would add with the characters, different storylines, obscure things you mentioned that should probably come up again later. So it's not just a textual ruin, Um, different, like it can be magical items, like literally anything that comes up in any of the stories can be something to keep track of to bring up later. You know, something I started doing, and I don't know if either one of you do this, but when I really have a a cast of characters, quite a few characters, I actually will start to draw up a character sheet for each of them with a lot of details really sort of helps me to uh, stay focused. Mm. I don't necessarily do a lot of outlining, but I do try to uh, yeah, develop three-dimensional characters as best I can. And uh, doing that is really a good way to explore your characters as well. And there are forms, you can even find some of these online that really go into your, your characters, their fears, their likes, their dislikes, mm. uh, you know, religious beliefs or lack thereof, what their father was like, what their mother was like, and, you know, all sorts of other just details, either from major details all the way to some small details. You can really get to learn a lot about your character. And then when you go to write about them, you can really inject that multidimensionality into their their background, their personality. And you may not write about everything that ever happened to them, but you at least you know, and you can inject, yeah, that uh, believability, hopefully as well. Right. That actually reminds me. So I haven't done as much of that, but um, I've been wanting to, especially I'm trying to focus more on outlining and plotting ahead of time. And so I I know we've mentioned Scribner a bunch on this podcast, but I actually found a template that's like a world building template specifically for Scribner. And I know we're not in the tool section yet, Hmm. but we're not talking about that in the tool. So I'll just mention it now, but it's called Leviathan and um, you can find it to download for free it's just a scrivener template and basically you'd start a new project with this template and it's got this really in-depth world building stuff already in there and you can have your story in the same file mm. but really neat goes super in-depth on like all the things you mentioned with character religions magic anything you want to add into it so i'm gonna give that a try and see how it goes very interesting. So my weird thing for series, and I haven't done this very, I'm telling myself, I haven't done this very well with the Blade Mage, and I really need to take the time to do it. I did do it with Assassins Incorporated. Now, that may not be true, because I might have to make sure I actually did the second book. But for the first book, one thing I did, and, and it made it way easier for me to write the second one, is I went into OneNote, and I made a notebook that basically is Assassins Incorporated, Assassins Wiki. Right. Mm. And so then what I did was I sat mm. down with a Maya. Oh, my gosh. I've forgotten the term. The copy the publisher sends you right before they publish it. The PDF. Galley. The galley. galley. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So I sat down with my galley edits, knowing that that was the final. That's what's going into print. Right. And I read through it. And every time. Well, so basically there's a tab here for primary characters, antagonists, tertiary characters, important side characters, places, species, things, factions. 
And every time I would introduce a new one, I had these little templates I made up. So like I'm in the primary character right now. So I have a template that's name, appearance, role, description, abilities, faction, special equipment, and other notes. As I was reading through the galleys, every time a character was introduced, I would go add them to one of these templates. But what I would do is I'd copy and paste from the galley so that what's in my notes is literally what's in the book and not my Mm -hmm. own side scratch notes in case I change something. And then I filled this out for every character, every place, everything, the weapons, the ships, whatever they were using. And I just, it was very meticulous and it took a lot of time. But by the time I was done, now I have this really robust like wiki I made for myself that I can just Mm -hmm. go back to. And I know exactly what everything was and how it was written verbatim in the previous books. Yep. All right. All right. So Tommy, one last question, and then we should probably do the news. Your quick advice for the newbie author. I would say don't listen to bad advice. Say uh, learn the difference between constructive and destructive criticism. Their constructive criticism can be a valuable tool for an author to place as a newer author. I would say place your ego aside and just exhibit a willingness to learn and to grow. And that will help you more than anything. Love it. Perfect. But be careful who you listen to. I feel like that was pointed at me. Are you saying don't listen to Phil, but you listen to JH? I'm not going to name names here. <laughs> also, I appreciate the creepy way you leaned forward to say all of that. It was good. It was very, I was like, I was like, he's on the edge of his seat. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> all right, let's do the news. Okay, first news story this time around. So we talked on a previous episode about reading fiction making you smarter. So apparently Yale University actually did a study and determined that not only what does reading make you smarter, but apparently it'll help you live longer. And their study suggested it can be as much as two years longer than people who don't read. So that is interesting. It is, with the trade-off being that I've definitely spent at least five years worth of my life reading at this point. So (laughs) I'm not sure how that balances the scales, but I don't regret any of that. So Yeah, same. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I guess if anybody makes fun of you for reading books, then you can just laugh when they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and our next story is that the Authors Guild of the American Booksellers Association and the Open Markets Institute sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission on August 16th asking them to investigate Amazon as a monopoly for dominating the book world. I don't know that anything will come of this, but I just thought it was interesting that uh, that's being called out. But crazy talk. Amazon dominating the book world? Hard to believe. Yeah, so for the next bit, bids for Worldcon 2025 are now open. So for people who don't know what that is, um, Worldcon is kind of the big science fiction and fantasy convention every year. They always change locations and they have like the bids, which like the votes years, it can be like a couple years in advance. So um, when we went back in, I don't know what year it was, 2016, they were able to do the bids for, you know, Dublin, which happened in 2019. So it looks like right now the only... The location bidding for 2025 is Seattle, Washington. So I would go there. It's definitely cooler weather than what we've got right now. I don't know how the smoke situation is. This year it's in Chengdu, China. And then next year it's in Glasgow, Scotland. But I guess it'll be... I want to go there. Potentially returning to the U.S. in 2025. (laughs) We shall see. Yeah. (laughs) Don't they have the thing where when it's out of the country, there's some sort of other convention that takes place in the U.S.? Yes, I believe that's NASFIC. I can never remember what it's called. Okay. Whenever the World Science Fiction Convention goes out of the country, I believe that's when they do NASFIC. I'm sure there's a possibility I'm wrong about that, but I think that's correct. (laughs) And our next news story is more scams for authors. Yay, scams, our favorite. Um, (laughs) Author uh, Ann R. Allen has compiled a list of current scams running rampant in our industry. I think we referenced her blog previously talking about some ongoing scams. And so now she has some more for us. I am not going to go into great, great detail, but just to hit the highlights. And uh, I think, you know, everyone should go check out her blog and see what she has to say, because she's got some really good details about what's going on. But just to summarize, apparently there are some scammers who will call and say that actor Logan Crawford has read their book and wants to interview them. 
<laughs> and then they <laughs> charge a thousand bucks. And well, that's pretty much it. They just take your money. Apparently, Logan Crawford actually does interview some authors and the scammers picked up on that and are like, ah, we'll just pretend we're with this guy and charge you a thousand bucks. So and then continuing the theme of impersonations, obviously, we talked about the Jane Friedman story not long ago, but now apparently scammers are also impersonating agents and targeting indie authors and, you know, taking the name of a real agent and being like, hey, we're really interested in your book and we'll make it really big for you if you just give us, you know, a thousand bucks. And then you have scammers pretending to be a literary agency and, you know, basically reaching out to you saying that there's some big time editor or Hollywood wants to look at one of your titles. And if you'll just send them some monies for some of their services, they'll help you make that happen. <laughs> and then, of course, the good old vanity presses are still doing what they do. So, yeah, you should definitely check out her blog and that article. And I'll put it in the show notes, of course, and just avoid the nefarious players. I would say that all of the red flags of the above include send me money. So watch out for that. Generally a safe place to start. Exactly. I would also add the fact of like an agent contacting you, but we just had a Lee Martinez on was a couple weekends, a couple weeks ago now. And his agent actually did contact him. It's like the only person I know of Mm. where it went that way. But yeah, normally that would be a red flag as well. But he was given a heads up by his editor that the agent would be calling. So it would, you know, (laughs) Yeah, but normally that would be a red flag as well. So unless you've submitted to them, you they're not going to seek you out. Right. Uh, all right, for the next news story. So Sifwatch, science fiction and fantasy? Do they include fantasy? Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. <laughs> okay, that was the question. I couldn't remember if they included fantasy or not. It should be Sifwa. Yes, two Fs. <laughs> So I guess they've updated their requirements for membership, those who are eligible for membership. So now they will accept poets and translators of science fiction and fantasy. So if Mm. you're a listener and you qualify under one of those, you're now probably eligible for membership. So check that out. Cue. All right. Uh, It's the part I hate about Chris not being here. It hurts my heart. Not only do I miss him, (laughs) but I miss the voice and I'll have to try to do it myself. In our continued coverage of our robot overlords. How was that? Nailed it. Perfect. All right. (laughs) So our AI stories this week are quite, is amusing the right word? I don't know if amusing is the right word. What are all these pants doing on my screen? There's like 800. (laughs) You guys see this? There's like, I'm going to count these for real. So like this article I just pulled up that has ads and it's showing pictures of shorts actually is what it is. And there are one, two, three. 12, 15, 33, 33. There are 33 shorts on my screen right now. (laughs) Apparently Google thinks I want to buy some shorts or it wants me to, I don't know what it's trying to tell me. Trying to tell you to keep it short. (laughs) I guess so. All right. So AI news. Is there more? If I scroll, is there even, Oh my God, there's more. I I can't tell that. Yep. Yep. There they are. There they are. So many shorts and a, and a puppy. No shortage. no shortage of shorts. Oh, Tommy, it's a shame that Chris isn't here. He would have loved that one. All right. So this story is both amusing and terrifying to me. So basically, a book about the Maui fire was published on August 10th during the fires. So somehow some super serious, hardcore, amazing author managed to write a whole book about the fire and get it published while the fire was still going. Also, just to add to it, the author doesn't exist. They're not a real person. So I guess the people are questioning, like, is this just a sort of old school run of the mill scam or AI? Maybe a bit of both, which is interesting. So that article came out on the 18th and Now, a few days later, they put out another one where they say the firebook was taken down and then republished by a whole different author. This imaginary author has an imaginary PhD, which lends them more credibility to their imaginariness. And now they even have a fake publisher on as well. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Also, not great reviews for the book. Unfortunately, as you can see, it's got a average one star from the eight ratings it's gotten. So that's fun. All right. And then finally, on the AI front, interesting news that this past Friday, a federal judge ruled that artwork created by AI can't be copyrighted. 
Now, some people are arguing against this, and I don't really want to get into all of that. But what's interesting is even with this ruling, it doesn't necessarily mean that some works won't be protected by copyright. So the U.S. Copyright Office basically has said that they're going to have to look at each of these situations on an individual basis and go from there. So I don't know that it really sets a huge precedence, but yeah, it's interesting. And that is our news. Okay, for the tools segment this time, we're going to talk about author newsletters. Oh, boy. So, Phil, I think you've been doing one for a while. Do you want to talk a bit about um, what you do for yours? I do, and I don't, if I'm honest, because I've really <laughs> neglected it. And this is your tip of the week. Don't be me. Don't neglect your newsletter, especially if you have real fans who have taken the trouble of signing up for your newsletter and that's how you connect with them don't be like me and be really bad at your newsletter now that said i do have one queued up and ready to send i just need to run back through it one more time and make sure i don't sound too stupid but i think the newsletter is a very very powerful and important tool for every author today and in particular what i do and you'll see that this strategy really i think comes out of the land of the very successful self-published authors, virtually all of them do this. They have a newsletter. They try to do it like monthly. But what they do is in their books, they'll put something about their newsletter in there and they will offer an exclusive story to like one of their series if you sign up for their newsletter. And I do the same thing. I have a book called Catalyst that has like two Blade Mage prequel stories and one Moonshine Wizard prequel story. And so when people sign up for my newsletter, they get that for free. And I use BookFunnel to get that to them. And I was able to connect that all up through my website and everything. But what happens is, is that if somebody reads your book and they like it and they see the only way to get the free story is to go sign up for the newsletter. And then, yeah, they you get to send them a message however often. I wouldn't do it too often. You don't want to spam them. And you don't like, I mean, we've all have emails and we all have newsletter things that get annoying, right? But if they like you and they liked your work enough to go to the trouble of signing up for the newsletter, then, you know, once a month, if you tell them about what's going on in your life and what you're working on and things like that, people will, will react and they'll interact with the newsletter and they'll be maybe more inclined to continue supporting you, really, right? Tommy, how do you do yours? Well, mine is fairly new. It's only a few issues in. It was a uh... Something I'd heard others talk about for a long time is that uh, you should definitely have an author newsletter. And for many years, I did not. And probably would have been helpful if I had had one a lot earlier. But it's never too late until you're dead. Right. So I started one. And especially now writing a series, I thought it would be really good to do my best to keep the momentum rolling. And one way to do that would be through the newsletter. So, you know, I have a list that I bring around to conventions that I do where people can physically sign up can write down their email address, what have you, name, uh, sign up. Uh, people can also do that digitally or do it online. But um, yeah, just uh, it updates people as to uh, writing progress, what's coming up, what's out. Also, there'll be some random entries. People want to know what's going on with me, different things that interest me that I will talk about, some of the issues. And then, of course, the list of appearances. But, you know, it keeps the readers engaged. So it's been interesting so far. And also consider that social media, we're watching social media and we've seen, we've seen this in the past. So many social medias mm -hmm. rise and fall, collapse. Remember MySpace? <laughs> I mean, where's MySpace now? It's, it's right. not MySpace anymore, right? right? Or yours, probably. <laughs> Facebook and, uh, you know, Twitter, which is now what, X? It's still Twitter. And tweets have become... I'm still calling it Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, and, uh, you know... And you have all kinds of new ones popping up, and some of those might work out, some sure. of them might not. But, you know, email has been around for a really long time now. Mm -hmm. So that way, at least you can, uh, yeah, bridge the gap between, you know, social media platforms that may not be around anymore someday and maintain that right. connection with your readers, hopefully. Right. Something I noticed and was actually talking with Phil about not too long ago was even with the social medias, like, so the popular ones today, even with those. So say they're still around 10 years from now. The problem I've noticed recently, like anytime I'm posting about, you know, new books or the album or whatever, 
like not everyone is seeing those posts, even if we're friends or they're following my page, like whatever al- yes, algorithm indeed. is going on, right. it's hiding those. They're not seeing it. We were actually talking about when we had Alexander on last week and he's had his YouTube channel up for like four years and we'd never even heard about it. Like he posted about it, but we right. never saw those posts. But like if we had subscribed to his newsletter, like he probably talked about it in there. Like to me, that's a better way to get whatever information you've got, any new releases that you have going on, or, you know, it's, it's a better way to interact with people who actually want to hear from you than social media. Cause then you're relying on those al- algorithms to let your fans know what's going on. Right. More poignantly on that topic, right. Is the sort of psychology of it, if you will. When you're on social media, you, even people who follow you and things, you're still casting out into the void more or less. Whereas With your newsletter, people have said, I want you to communicate with me. I want you to tell me what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing, and I've been rather successful with mine as far as like, even when I go through these long periods of not sending one and being really stupid, it is very stupid. Stay on your schedule. I've made it a very big point with my newsletter. I actually have myself a little template I wrote up that I follow because I want to make sure I'm doing it right. So I don't really promote anything in my newsletter at all. Basically, I'll open up and I'll just say a little something about what's been going on. I have a little section that's what am I what have I been working on? So I tell them, you know, this is where I'm at on the next Blade Mage book. Here's the other projects I'm working on. That's that's about just real short, like a paragraph or two. And then the next one is what's going on in my life. And I tell them whatever funny, stupid stories I've run into the same sorts of things I bring on here to joke about. I'll put in there. I will do a little section like what have I been reading? If I've been like if one of my favorite bands has a new album out, I'm really excited about. I'll include that. I will include whatever if I'm playing any video games. I'll include that. I'll do a little recaps of conventions and things. So it's very personal and it's very much in my voice, right? So I think I imagine people who you know read the Blade Mage is written in first person and is written very much in my own voice. I think the newsletter comes off the same way and they they probably enjoy that and and feel more of a connection to my work more so than myself just by being able to read that, right? I think so. I mean, I think there's value in letting people get to know you on a certain level because it's, uh, you know, speaking of doing events and the like, Mm -hmm. uh, if people know you and you make it, you do make that connection, people are more apt to check out your work and, and then you make another connection through your work that perhaps an even deeper connection and those people may become fans, readers of yours for some time to come. One thing that might work out really well for you, something because you, you still do tables basically everywhere you go. And I don't really do that as much anymore. But one thing I used to do for a short time that seemed to work really, really well for me is I bought a tablet, right? And what mm-hmm. I would do with that tablet is one, that's how I would run my you know credit cards and things um, through Squarespace or whatever when somebody bought books. But the other thing I would do is have the sign up page for my newsletter available on there. Mm-hmm. And or when it was just like I put it on a book stand facing the crowd and I would put like a slideshow together and it would be some of my book covers, some of me at the conventions with different people in cosplay, me floating on the river, me at a concert, those sorts of things. And it would just be kind of rolling through that as people would walk by or whatever. And I might put like a little sign beside it that said, sign up for my newsletter, get a free book. But I sold a lot of books because people walk by, watch that slideshow for a minute. And they're like, what's this about? And they start talking to me and be like, well, you know, if you don't want to buy something, I got a newsletter you can sign up for, that sort of thing. Really effective, very effective way to get signups and sell books and all of the above. Absolutely. You know, I find just uh, having a conversation starter in that method or perhaps another that's always useful. Many yeah. times at my table, I have something that uh, draws people over with, what is this? And uh, <laughs> then that right. begins the conversation. And then we have our conversation. From there, things happen. And then you're in the middle of selling a book and some idiot runs behind your table and grabs you to do a selfie. All of a sudden, it's like, <laughs> wanting to do a selfie. And then runs runs the potential reader completely out of your life. And then you don't have no. that reader. <laughs> but worst case scenario... No, that that typically never happens, though, except for the one time. <laughs> I, will, I kid, of course. I will use no. that picture on the episode. I'll, I'll remind myself to use that picture on the uh, episode cover art. <laughs> so people will know <laughs> when they hear it, they'll be like, oh, Tommy was in the middle of selling a book and Phil, that idiot, went and ruined it for him. <laughs> 
Um, I know it's sort of off topic, but I want to ask you about it anyway, while we're on the subject about just uh, conferences and conventions in general. What's your sort of strategy these days? What are, what are you looking to do when you get there? Well, at some tables, it, I guess a lot of the tables that I actually encounter you at, uh, I do have a table, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Conventions that are more writers' conferences, I don't tend to, but sometimes, like with doing a, an event, some writers' conferences offer basically a table on a limited basis uh, or for a limited time frame. Mm-hmm. They may have actually. Since I don't know if uh, either one of you have done just the Arkansas Writers Conference. Negative. Since I'm based in Arkansas, but you can get a table there. But it's not prime. It's not really a high sales, you know, sort of event. Sure. It's a, a writers' conference. You might sell a few books, what have you. Some, you know, you have a variety of different kinds of cons, and both of you already know this, but for anyone else listening out there, you know, you have the more fandom conventions, which uh, basically I did one not too long ago, which went really well, which was OKC Horror Con. So it's, uh, there's a lot of horror fandom, a lot of horror merchandise. Uh, you have the celebrities there signing autographs and such from different films. You have uh, people, with a lot of vendors and the like. And it was a good time. You know, there are a lot of horror fans that come in. You know, uh, I did really well at that event. And, uh, you know, from that one paid all of my expenses fairly quickly, which was which was nice because many times that sort of thing does not happen at those sort of events mm-hmm. unless it's known to be a well event uh, traffic wise. And that's one. But, uh, you know, you have other ones that will sort of help to further you in your knowledge or your career or both. that are more the writers conferences or even writers conferences that are centered around perhaps your chosen genre or genres roundabout. You know, there's some like StokerCon, of course. Once upon a time, you had the World Horror Con. Went to that way back when, which uh, Bram Stoker Awards and World Horror Con sort of split apart. So and then I have a Stoker Con where the Stoker Awards are presented. and But basically, it's sort of like a, a writer's conference for horror writers in which, you know, you can learn a lot about the business. You can do a lot of networking, make a lot of connections that can be valuable. People who can help you with your own work. There are so many ways people can simply help each other sure. out there in this uh yeah, I mean, writing, writing can be a very solitary pursuit, but it but doesn't have to be because, you know, there really are many of us in this together. And we can, you know, there are many ways we can help each other out. And you have sort of the hybrid events like SoonerCon, which is kind of a fandom event, but then also there's some programming that maintains a really positive, you know, synergy throughout the entire event. I've always enjoyed it for many years, I've, and I've done that one for more than a decade. Yeah, I'm creeping up on that as well. But I've always enjoyed it. I've always come back. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoy the friendships I've made from that one, just the interactions. And that one I do get sure. a table at, but I also do panels at that one. But I've I've met a lot of, you know, fellow writers, friends, colleagues, and the like, you know. We've had a lot to talk about, and we've talked to a lot of people through panels, and I've met a lot of readers. There are people I mm-hmm. speak to today, you know, who are reading my work that I've met out there over the years. And what's really interesting is someone coming up and telling you they read your book when they were a kid. So... <laughs> I'm like, wow. All right. So I've been doing that. Yeah, so I don't want anybody to come and tell me that. I'll be like, what? So I, I, haven't been right. at this, I still feel like I'm a newbie. Like, Yeah. Yeah, that's not – that. it is a good feeling, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been doing this for – that's so it. I'm this So I'm this old? <laughs> right. JH yeah. got a compliment one time where the person said, your book was really good. I expected it to be bad, but it was really, really good. I expected it to be yes. bad. <laughs> well, the first time I met you, I just knew this book would be a piece of crap. But then it was wonderful. I can't believe it. <laughs> so, Well, I thought you were going to be a terrible reader, but it turns out you are. So great. And that will be our tools segment. <laughs> All right, so for this week's Creatives on Fire, Tommy, never submit to a publisher, ever. (laughs) You got to tell me this story. Well, I was on a panel some time ago at an event this year that uh, I heard this, and I've never actually heard anyone say this before. Yeah, that's different. Someone said, uh, and I don't remember quite where it came from, someone from the audience of the panel asked a question, and then the panelist responded, let me tell you something. Never submit to a publisher. Never, ever submit to a publisher. Always submit to an agent. Never submit to a publisher. And then, so they went on to say that um, 
their studies have shown that agented submissions typically earn more money, which that's fine. And that may be the case. Mm. In my own experience with my own writing journey, and then also speaking with some authors who have been very successful, the wrong agent can set you back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've personally known people who this mm-hmm. this was the case. Now, uh, if things work out, best case scenario, yes, that can absolutely be a wonderful thing. They can negotiate uh, all sorts of rights and deals for you and make you a lot of money, I'm sure. But um, I've known people that landed agents and had to part with their agents as well. We have, and we know this, I believe we shared a panel on this at SoonerCon, but you have self-published, you have independently published, then we have traditionally published, and then agented submissions. Mm -hmm. Once you land an agent, I suppose your goal is to go traditionally published much of the time. So I feel like there's a place for probably all of those. For me, I spent a lot of time, there was a period of time where it appeared that I didn't really have anything, very little work coming out. These were uh, amid my efforts to try to land mm-hmm. within a traditional publisher, perhaps uh, land my books uh, on shelves everywhere, if at all possible. But that can be a very time-consuming process. I know that you people know this. <laughs> so <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's throw down some groundwork here just to help people out a little bit, I think. All right. All right. So to me, there's sort of three things, right? I put things into three buckets because I think it simplifies it from a business standpoint for me is that you have your self-publishing, obviously. You have your traditional publishing, but I would separate traditional publishing into two buckets, right? So I would say self-publishing, small indie house publishing, and then like big house, big five, and a few of the other big name publishers. That's how I would sort of break it down. Now, obviously if you're self-publishing, that's all you. So that's fine, we can skip right past that one. But when you're talking about small press publishing as well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, and you know, I've got work with small publishers. JH has work with small publishers. Tommy B. Smith has work with small publishers. Some of them are very great and very legit, but by and large, you wouldn't ever have an, you probably wouldn't have an agent to interact with them. That would be kind of bizarre. So when you're talking about agents, it's mostly going to be about those really big houses, like, you know, the tours and Hachette and Penguin Random House, things like that. Because a lot of those generally don't take unsolicited manuscripts. So sometimes you kind of need an agent. Now, but we also know anybody who's listened to the show knows that's not always the case because we've had people like Leon and Gerald and Brian and Gary who've talked about some of these things, right? So a lot of them met an editor from a major publisher who they kind of became friends with and they were like, hey, let me take a look at something you've done, right? In the case of Lee, who was on a couple weeks ago, he was, I think he said three or four novels in before he agreed to take on an agent. So it can kind of happen different ways. So for mm-hmm. any time somebody is sitting there saying, this is the only way this works and this is what you've got to do, you can just probably disregard that information because there's probably not necessarily true. Now that said, by and large, if you want to get into one of the big traditional houses, your options are that you find one that allows slush and you get really, really lucky getting through that slush pile, or you happen to meet an editor and you get really, really lucky and they want to read some of your stuff and then you get really, really lucky and they like it and decide to take it on, or you meet an agent or query to an agent and you get really, really lucky and they really like your stuff and they think they can sell it and then they want to represent you. And starting out, like when you're trying to break into the industry, I don't care if you might have got a few more bucks because you had an agent like you want to make it happen. Right. So that's sort of a silly argument to make that you would make more money because you have an agent, because landing an agent is as hard as landing a publisher to begin with when you're talking about the big traditional. So I think that groundwork is kind of important for people to understand. And if I said anything stupid, Jay or Tommy disagree with me. I was just going to add, so in that scenario where they're saying don't submit to a publisher because you'll make more with an agent, that's assuming that the publisher liked it and then you you then signed a contract without getting an agent. You can get an agent before you sign anything and you can still have an agent to assist you with that contract and get you more money. Yeah, that's true as well. In that scenario, you can still get an agent and have a better contract and you still submit it to the publisher first. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very good point. 
so anyways, Tommy, where did so where did this conversation go and what were your what were your takes on it? No, it's just simply reflecting upon the time periods when I was working on landing something with uh, one of those traditional publishers. And for a long time, I really didn't have anything come out because, you know, just getting a response period sometimes is right. not the fastest mm-hmm. endeavor. Sometimes, yeah, like you said, they do have uh, open calls and what have you, you know, for a limited time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it got to the point where someone's asking me, well, how come you never have anything new out? I'm like, well, I've written countless works since that time, but it's just a difficult, you know, it may be that you're writing something that's perhaps not commercially viable, or at least not to an agent you've met or to a publisher you've submitted to, you know, and sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, the independent publishing houses are good for that, you know, and then uh, there have been some who have been quite successful with their works who have told me uh, traditional publishers are good for getting them into the, you know, into Barnes and Noble, Books a Million and what have you, you know, these stores, but those publishers never fight for them like the independents do. So they, again, that's going to depend on who that independent publisher is. You know, there's a matter of reputation to consider in the independent publishing community. Yeah, I think it's all viable, right? So like what we're about really, you know, I always try to go back to the core of the of what the podcast is about. And it's about helping our, our fellow authors and, and their careers, right? So, sure. I mean, there's an obvious reason why getting into one of the big publishers is a benefit to you, right? Because then you get into Barnes and Noble and those sorts of things. However, every piece of this is a double-edged sword, right? So, you know, I've known people who've had the opportunity to get their books into a major publisher and get their books on the shelf at Barnes and Noble and on Books a Million and all the big bookstores, but it didn't sell that well, right? And the way I understand it, the way I've heard from old veterans is, if a publisher picks you up, probably they're going to take a chance on you on maybe three books, right? The first book, they kind of expect to lose money. The second book, they're kind of, eh, okay, we might lose a little bit. It'd be nice if we came out even. But they're expecting by book number three that you're churning a profit, right? Because at the end of the day, they're a business and that's what they're about, right? So I've known people who've had that big breakthrough moment that they they felt like was their breakthrough. And then the double-edged sword of it came around because they didn't sell that many copies and they kind of started back to square one, right? Then obviously with the smaller independent presses, the double-edged sword isn't quite as sharp, I think, in that on the one side of it, you probably, you're not going to sell quite as many. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to be, you're going to have the same distribution, right? You're not going to probably be in Barnes and Noble. You're not going to be at every books a million and all of that, right? But the other side of it, to Tommy's point, is that it will open other doors for you, right? So a lot of the conventions I've been to, there are conventions you know, like some of the conventions are kind of hard to get into. They might sell you a table, but to be a panelist, they might be like, I don't know who you are. Right. But if you have a publisher that you go with who has a presence there, they know everyone, that sort of thing, they might be able to sway getting you in as a guest, right? So that you're a guest speaker and that sort of thing. I'm thinking, for example, the work I've done with Yard Dog Press. I've sold lots of books because Selena puts on a road show at a lot of them where we do goofy comedy things and we all just, you know, we're just silly and people eat it up and we end up selling more books, right? There are people who buy my books just because they buy, they have so much loyalty to that independent publisher, they'll buy everything that Yard Dog puts out, right? So there's an advantage to that as well. You just probably aren't going to make loads of money, but it might open up other doors for you to get to do other things and meet more people and have a chance to go to more conventions where maybe, you know, something magical can happen. It can also help you start building a little bit of a fan base too, right? Sure. On the self-publishing side, it's very much about that strategy of putting out a lot of books and doing all of that. And all of it can help you start building that fan base so that if the opportunity to go into one of the big houses happens, maybe you'll be better suited to sell enough books that they keep you around, right? It's all viable. It's all about building your your career. Sure. Building your brand, you know. Sometimes that takes a while. Yeah. I think what's important is to have a sort of strategy, right? You build your strategy. Right. What's my strategy for my business, right? Absolutely. Speaking of businesses... Tommy, do you have some thoughts on cost-effective or cost-exempt marketing tactics that you would like to share? I think, in a, speaking on panels, there was one that I had spoken. Uh, we got into talking about marketing. I always thought, I mean, before the marketing commences, the greatest marketing and promotion tool of all is the product itself, in my view. 
So to sure. write the best book you possibly can, editing is important. You know, either you have an in-house editor with a publisher, or if you have to hire an editor, find someone reputable, someone who has experience, knows what they're doing. But then after that, we plunge into the marketing and promotion. The funnest part. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. And one panelist had said the most important part of it was marketing. And then I, I don't know, we had a little disagreement on that. But anyway, my view is that the book comes first, the quality comes first. And then after that, you worry about the marketing and promotion and the like, you know, once you've created the best you possibly can. But going back to the scams, you know, one time someone contacted me about uh, doing an interview and a uh, little short story, but um, someone said, would you like to do an interview? Because I had just had a book come out and I said, sure, that's fine. And they said, all right, wonderful. I only charge $50 per interview, which I publicize on my blog, blah, 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 is all I heard for the rest of it. Because I said, uh, you know what? I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> well, it's just because, well, I guess you didn't know I was going to send you an invoice for being on the podcast <laughs> with us, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I 100% I agree with you that the, and I have heard, I've heard some semi-reasonable arguments against the quality of the book. I'm still a believer. I'm very much a believer. In fact, I just, I had a, Oh gosh, I had a conversation about this not too long ago. So there there are some people in the self-publishing space who put out books very, very quickly, and they would tell you that indeed the quality of them doesn't matter and the, you know, editing them and getting the typos out doesn't matter. I just I don't believe in it. I want the product that is associated with my name to mm -hmm. to be strong. Yes. And I also didn't follow their rules. And I was having this conversation recently that I've had some unique things happen with my own career, my newsletter being an example, right? So I can go a very long stretch without doing a newsletter. And I put one out and the interaction that's cataloged from people is astronomical, even compared to some like big names I've, I've talked to. And I think what worked for me was going against the grain a little bit, right? So I knew I know a lot of people who are very successful in the self-published space and the way they do it and the way they do things. And, and a lot of the same people who are telling me not to worry about the quality of my books and make sure that they're cardboard cutouts and blah, blah, blah. I took all of their advice except for those parts. And I try really hard to get my quality where it should be, even though sometimes I accidentally publish the wrong book, that sort <laughs> of thing. Draft, you mean? <laughs> uh -huh. And, and, uh, and right. I intentionally didn't write cardboard <laughs> cutouts. I write <clears throat> the books the way I want to write them. And they fit the genre and I, I do the rest of the steps, right? And my read through, both my read through and my self-published titles and the newsletter interactions are considerably higher than what's supposed to be normal based on what I've understood, right? And I'm, you know, that's not a brag. That's to say that that's why I think it is. I think it's because I followed their strategy from publishing and marketing and things I didn't completely follow the advice about writing cardboard cutout books and just hammering them out as fast as I could and not worrying about the quality at all. I went ahead and took care of those two things. And I think that it shows for people who've liked the books. And I think that they're happy when they get a newsletter from me because maybe they're, you know, if they most of the time, if you have a reader from the self-publishing world, it's probably because they read a lot of self-published titles. And I think maybe my quality sticks out. That's what I have to believe, right? Well, I know that I, as a reader, and as I'm sure we all are, as we, we all began that way, but yeah, I notice myself. Where did that train of thought go? Oh, that's all. That's it. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought you were going to... Quality. I noticed quality. Yeah. Quality, yes. I noticed quality. I noticed I notice quality. I noticed a lack of quality. And I and will stop reading much, if it's not there. And that's pretty much it. Yep. And you know what? That's a great place for us to end. So Tommy B. Smith, tell the people where to find you, my friend. Yes, you can find me at TommyBSmith.net. You can find me at Facebook.com at author Tommy B. Smith. You can find me at, well, I guess it's Twitter or X or whatever it is these days at Pen of Chaos. And there we have it. Nice. Hey, by the way, we're going to go to the Halloween Festival on Friday the 13th. I don't know if you've ever been, but you ought to go. Where is this at? Muskogee. Oh, yes. I actually have. Uh, I waited in line for like, what, about six hours trying to get into one oh, of the wow. attractions. Oh, my gosh. That's never happened to us. And we, fi we finally just left. 
But yeah, years ago I did. I enjoyed you it again. They've, it's a lot quicker now. All right. It's better now. It's way better. We enjoyed parts of it, except for that part. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have stayed either. But it's not like that now. It's way better. Uh, Friday the 13th on in October. We're going. JH, tell the people where to find you. Um, I'm on all the social media sites. You can also find me at www.jhfleming.net. I'm on a bunch of music sites under my um, band name, Wildwood Minstrels. I'm on Fiverr as an editor. So, yeah, you can find me at any of those. All right. And I'm Philip Trayer Duncan. You can find me at philiptrayerduncan.com. Places that books be sold. You can find me on the Twitter X, on the Faces books, Books of Faces, whatever it is. I'm all around. You can find me. And uh, the podcast is futurebestsellerpodcast.com. Tommy B. Smith, thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to talking to you again soon, my friend. Thank you for having me. been a pleasure. Yeah. Excellent to speak with both of you again. All right. Thanks, everyone. That's a pod. <laughs>